I received a, a WhatsApp from uh, Elijah and uh, it was very encouraging to hear how things are going with him and with Anne. Um, as you know, he's been given the responsibility in Kenya for running uh, young adults ministry across 50 parishes. And even though they were underfunded, they went out in a step of faith and went to their church placement last week. And he, I think, led three services with something like 300 people in each service. So we do thank God for the way he's using Elijah and Anne. Please keep them in your prayers. Well, do please have the Bible passage uh, open. Uh, We are going to go actually all the way to verse 15 page 750, and please also have the outline in the white bulletin uh, to hand. I think you will find that useful. So I'm going to ask for God's help. Well, Heavenly Father, once again we do thank you for the enormous privilege of an open Bible. Uh, We do think of those many peoples around the world for whom that is a sheer impossibility. Help us not to take this privilege for granted. Uh, Speak to us clearly through your word this morning in this most important text. And we ask that you would send us from this place, changed forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to uh, focus our thoughts this morning uh, around the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in verse 7. Uh, where the Lord Jesus says, you must be born again. Now that, of course, is a phrase that has come down to us, and so people today talk about born-again Christians as if they're a special category of Christian, perhaps rather different from other kinds of Christian. And uh, over the years, the born-again label has given rise, I think, to at least two stereotypes or caricatures in the public mind. So, for many people, a born-again Christian uh, is somebody who's terribly enthusiastic about their faith without really knowing why. They're nice, but perhaps a bit simple. Uh, the sort of person that it might be just a little bit embarrassing to bring home to your family. For others, uh, a born-again Christian is a religious fundamentalist. Uh, If we're honest, they're a bit of a nuisance. They're the kind of person who's always trying to pick arguments with people of other faiths. And so we try and stay as far away from them as we possibly can. Uh, Either way, born-again Christians haven't always had a good press. But of course, like so many caricatures, both of those views are a million miles away from what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So this morning, we need to come back to the text in order to discover what Jesus is really talking about. And uh, if nothing else, I want to show you that what Jesus is saying is that there is no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. If I say I'm a Christian, and then I very quickly add, but I'm not born again, well, according to Jesus in this passage, I'm not actually a Christian at all. How do we get there? 
Well, as I was puzzling over it, I think if we look for clues as to how the passage is structured, you'll notice that in these 15 verses, there are three statements by the Lord Jesus, each beginning with the important phrase, I tell you the truth. Jesus uses that phrase in verse 3, again in verse 5, and again in verse 11. And I think that gives us a clue about how we can break the passage down and begin to understand what Jesus is saying. Because each of those statements is answering a question or an implied question from Nicodemus. And they're all to do with what it means to be born again. So, I want to look at each of those sections in turn in our time together this morning. And the first thing I want to say is that what Jesus says, we all need to be born again. Now, there are at least, I think, four strands of evidence in the text. In verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, You must be born again. And the word must is a very strong word indeed in the original language. It implies an absolute and inescapable necessity. There's no alternative. It's saying that being born again isn't a luxury for just a few super super keen Christians. It's saying there is no avoiding it. It's not one option amongst many. No. If I am to be a Christian, this is a must. And uh, the pronoun you in that verse uh, is actually in the second person plural. Don't worry, I'm not going to get horribly technical with you. But previously in the passage, Jesus has been using the second person singular. And by you, he's been meaning Nicodemus. But all of a sudden, Jesus suddenly changes to the plural because what he says applies not just to Nicodemus, but to everybody, all mankind. You all must be born again. So that's the first piece of evidence. Jesus says it is an absolute must. But then secondly, there is that curious introductory statement I mentioned a moment ago in verse 3. I tell you the truth. Now, Jesus is the only person in the New Testament who uses that particular phrase. And wherever you see it, it's a sign that what Jesus is about to say is exceptionally important. It is something supremely significant. It's our Lord putting it, as it were, in bold black type and underlining it in red. He's giving us a signal. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is true, it is absolutely true, and I, the Son of God, am solemnly and officially guaranteeing it. Now, of course, everything in the Bible is important. But here we have something that has been underlined and emphasised so that our minds don't simply slide over it. Then thirdly, there is the statement Jesus makes in verse 3, 
where he says no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now interestingly, John doesn't use that phrase, kingdom of God, very much. Uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke use it all the time. But John prefers the phrase eternal life. That is how John normally talks about the kingdom of God. So here, we're being told that if we want eternal life, if we want to go to heaven when we die, we must be born again. Unless you are born again, says Jesus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You'll notice uh, later on in verse 5, he says no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. But you see, verse 3 is even stronger. Not only can this person not enter it, he can't even see it. He doesn't know anything about it. He can't understand it. He's completely ignorant. So here we have three strands of evidence impressing upon us that we absolutely must be born again. It's a necessity. But the fourth strand of evidence is, I think, the most impressive of all. And it is the person Jesus is talking to here. Jesus here is talking to one of the best men in Israel. And it's to him that Jesus says, yes, even you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In verse 1, you'll notice we're told that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. Now, of course, having read our Old Testaments, most of us are mentally programmed to start booing as soon as a Pharisee appears on the scene. We think they're the bad guys. But actually, the Pharisees were the most serious Bible students of their day. They were the religious leaders. Many of them were sincere, genuine men, and many of them became Christians. They were the churchgoers. They were the ministers. They were the leaders par excellence. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, however, he was also one of the 70 members of the Jewish government, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. And we know that, don't we, because in verse 1, John says he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So Nicodemus is right at the very top in terms of prestige and honour and authority. All the Jews looked up to Nicodemus. He was also, you'll notice, Israel's teacher. In fact, there's quite a subtle point in verse 10 if you'd like to look at it. Because in the original language, Jesus addresses Nicodemus not simply as a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus wasn't just one teacher amongst many, he wasn't just another rabbi. Now, if you wanted to do your PhD in the Old Testament and you were looking for somebody to supervise your work, everyone would have said, Nicodemus is your man. There's no one like him. Also, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Nicodemus came from one of the top 
aristocratic families in Israel. This man, therefore, has everything going for him, doesn't he? He has pedigree, he has scholarship, he has track record, he has respect. He's even terribly polite, isn't he, in his approach to Jesus. Did you notice that in verse 2? He says, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. Very polite. And yet, you see, it is to this man that Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, I find this very interesting because, you see, we could have understood it, couldn't we, if Jesus had said that in chapter 4. We haven't got there yet. But in chapter 4, we find Jesus talking to an entirely different person. Not to a Jew, but to a despised Samaritan. In chapter 4, Jesus is talking not to a highly respected public figure, but to a fallen woman. He's talking not to an aristocrat, but to a peasant. He's talking not to someone who knew their Bible backwards, but to someone who was biblically illiterate. He's talking there not to someone who's moral and upright, but to someone whose life was a complete mess. And you see, if Jesus had said to the Samaritan woman, you must be born again, well, I think we would have said, well, yes, obviously. You know, here's someone who's living a sinful life. She's already had five husbands, and the man that she's living with now isn't her husband. This woman needs to be changed radically. But Nicodemus? Seriously? This great religious teacher, this marvellous respected Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, does he need to be born again? And that, my friends, is the whole point. Everyone needs to be born again. It is the uh, transformation theme, isn't it, that we were talking about in last week's study, which runs right the way through John's Gospel. Jesus has come to transform everything. Last week it was the religious water of cleansing we saw that was turned into the wine of forgiveness. Then at the end of chapter 2, which we haven't looked at, Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple and starts talking about a new temple. And now he comes to the greatest of the rabbis and says, yes, even you must be born again. It's striking that John tells us that Nicodemus came at night, verse 2. Every time uh, John mentions night in his gospel, it always has a double meaning. It's talking about the hours of darkness, but it also has a moral meaning, a spiritual meaning. Darkness means blindness. And this brilliant man who came to Jesus at night was in the dark, doubly dark. It was dark outside, but it was dark inside his own mind and heart. And if Nicodemus was in the dark, and if Nicodemus needed to be born again, well, so do you, and so do I. And so I do need to ask you this morning, have you been born again? 
Have you been changed by Jesus? Can you honestly say that he has made you a new person? And the reason I ask that is that if that is not the case, nothing else in your life actually matters. It doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter if you were born into a Christian family. It doesn't matter what people think of you or what a terrific reputation you might have. It doesn't matter if you're a moral and kind person. It doesn't matter if you're a theological genius with five PhDs. Jesus says, if you are not born again, you are outside of the kingdom. You're on your way, not to heaven, but to hell. You must be born again. Well, some of you here this morning know that George Whitfield was the greatest preacher uh, in England and in America in the 18th century revival. And verse 7 was George Whitfield's favourite text. He preached on that text more than any other text in the Bible. And uh, one of his friends one day said to him, George, well, I don't know whether he called him George, perhaps he called him Reverend Whitfield, I don't know. He said, why? Why do you always preach on that text? And Whitfield's answer was disturbingly simple. He said, because you must be born again. So that's our first point. Have you got it? You must be born again. We all need it. But secondly, we have to ask, what does it actually mean to be born again? Well, remember, will you, that Nicodemus was an intelligent man. So in verse 4, he's not asking a stupid question. Uh, Sometimes people read verse 4 and think poor old Nicodemus was being a bit dim. Because in verse 4, he says to Jesus, How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. What a ridiculous question, people say. But Nicodemus is not stupid. He's brilliant. No one was more intelligent than Nicodemus. As I was thinking about it, I mean, I suppose it is just possible that he was being sarcastic. But I think it's much more likely that he was being wistful. That he's actually taking Jesus seriously and thinking carefully about what Jesus said. I mean, think about it. He's taking quite a risk, isn't he, coming to Jesus at all. He's risking his reputation. And I think verse 4 is his way of saying, you know what, Jesus, I really would like that. I would love to be born again. I'd love to be a new person. It's a nice idea. It's something we all long for. But of course we know it can't possibly happen. Maybe that was what the poet Tennyson had in his mind when he wrote these words. Oh, for a man to rise in me that the man I am might cease to be. Now, we've all felt like that, haven't we? I know I have. I wish I was different. And Nicodemus, I think, is saying something like that. 
He understands what Jesus is saying. But Nicodemus is also saying, but I just don't think it's possible. Now the point is that the language Jesus uses here is saying something about the scale of the problem. Now think about this with me. You know, don't you, that when we go to the doctor, the remedy that the doctor prescribes is an indication of the seriousness of the disease. And sometimes it's actually more serious than we might think. This week I was reading about a man who had a persistent sore on his ankle. Uh, It wouldn't heal and it began to spread. But to begin with, it, it didn't look like anything much more serious than a nasty rash. And so for a long time he ignored it. But in the end, he did go to the doctor. And uh, the doctor said, well, I'm terribly sorry, but your leg is going to have to be amputated below the knee. I can't remember the name of the particular infection that he had, but whatever it was, he only realised how serious his condition was when the doctor told him what had to be done to cure it. If it's amputation, it's serious. And you see, in the same way, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's saying that naturally we are in a desperate state. And what we need and what we must have is not just a makeover, uh, not just some cosmetic airbrushing, uh, not just a little bit of spiritual plastic surgery. A few minor improvements here and there are just not going to do it. There is something so desperately and terribly wrong with all of us by nature that we need to be born again. And the remedy, you see, is highlighting the seriousness of our condition. But at the same time, can I say it's also enormously helpful and hopeful because contrary to what Nicodemus thought, It is possible to be born again. It's not a dream. It's not a fantasy. It's not wishful thinking. You know, Jesus is the teacher who's come from God. Here we've got God in the flesh. And God says, I tell you the truth, you must be born again, and that means it must be possible. But what does it mean? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 5. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, entire forests have been demolished to provide the commentators with enough paper to debate what Jesus means when he talks about being born of water and the Spirit. And you'll be delighted to know that I'm not going to trouble you with any of their suggestions because I think what Jesus is saying is perfectly obvious. You see, here we have Nicodemus. What is he? He's a teacher of the Old Testament. And there are a number of places in the Old Testament where these two terms, water and spirit, are brought together. And whenever we find them brought together in the Old Testament, it is always talking about the age of the Messiah, the age of forgiveness, the age of getting right with God. 
So, for example, Isaiah 44, verse 3, you don't need to look it up. This is what the Lord says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. So there you are, you've got the two together, water and spirit. And in that context, God is promising forgiveness for Israel. But I think the passage that Jesus is quite obviously referring to here is Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. But look it up later rather than now because I want you to look up something else later. But listen, listen to what God promises in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. Now I think that's the background in John 3 and that what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is you need to be made completely new. And it's something that God does by sprinkling you with water to cleanse you from your sin and by putting his spirit in you. And when those two things have happened, you will have a new heart. Now, in the Bible, the heart is uh, not something on a Valentine's Day card. The heart is the control centre of the personality. It is the place where we make our decisions. It's the place where we determine our priorities. And the point you see that Jesus is making in John chapter 3 is that by birth, all of us, all of us, have a heart of stone. Now you're familiar with that phrase, you know it perfectly well. If you say somebody's got a heart of stone, you're saying that they've got no compassion, uh, no mercy, no pity. So they're the kind of person who can read about a child being abused and it doesn't move them. They don't care. Uh, They don't weep. They don't become angry. And you say of that person, well, he's got a heart of stone. They don't feel anything. And you see, the Bible is saying to us that where God is concerned, all of us by nature have a heart of stone. We're not interested in him. We don't believe in him. We don't love him. It just simply doesn't register with us. We might hear hundreds of sermons Uh, We can read the Bible for years. Nothing happens because we've got a heart of stone. And so you see, the people that you know who are not yet Christians have hearts of stone. So there's absolutely no point in being impatient with them. There's no point in being angry with them. There's no point in saying, why can't they see it? Because they can't. They can't feel anything. But then, then God does something. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit in you. The theological term for that is regeneration or new birth or being born again or born from above because the phrase in our text can equally well be translated as born from above. And what that means is that God changes us. He gives us a new heart. And so suddenly we start to understand the gospel. We begin to see it for the first time. We say, how could I have been so blind? Sometimes the the new birth is a gradual thing. Uh, That's often how it is with children. Uh, There's no sudden flash of light. But over the months and the years, a child begins to show evidence of a real understanding that they are believing and trusting. And it can be gradual with adults as well. Uh, Someone begins to take an interest in the Bible. They were never interested in it before, but suddenly they're finding they want to read it. And they're interested in it. And they start talking to their friends about it. And they start wondering what it actually means to be a Christian. And that is God at work in that person. He's changing them from the inside out. It might be a long process. But it is sometimes an immediate thing. It is possible for a person to walk into church on Sunday morning as an unbeliever on their way to hell but at the end of the service their heart has been changed and they've been given a new understanding and love for the word of God and it's beginning to make sense to them. But friends, can I say this? Whether it's gradual or whether it's quick is not actually the important thing. The important thing is that however it comes, there's been a change. And in that change, we turn from sin. Remember, sin, S-I-N, I, I in the middle, Simon Clegg, number one, that's what sin is. We turn from putting ourselves first, and we trust in Christ. And when that happens for somebody, they're born again. Now, you may say, well, you know, that's very mysterious. I'm not sure I can really get my mind around that. Well, of course it's mysterious. We can't predict when it's going to happen or how it will happen or to whom it will happen. We've got no idea really how it works. We don't understand how the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and minds. We can't explain it. And so Jesus has to say to Nicodemus, don't be surprised about this. It is surprising. It is mysterious. But just because it's mysterious doesn't mean it's not true. And just because it's mysterious doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Look at the illustration that Jesus uses here. It is absolutely brilliant. What is it? It's the wind, isn't it? And the reason it's such a brilliant illustration is because in Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. And we can't predict the wind, even with the most sophisticated weather apps on our cell phones if we know how to use them. We don't know for sure uh, when the wind's going to blow or where it's going to blow. 
or for how long it's going to blow. And we can't even see it. That's the point, isn't it? It's invisible. When you see a tree bending over, well, you know the wind is blowing. When you look out of the window and you see people leaning into the wind, you know the wind is blowing, but you can't see it. You only know that the wind is blowing by its effects. And Jesus says that's precisely how it is with the new birth. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, we see people change, don't we? Haven't you seen people change? Yes, somebody say. They're different people. They've got a new interest in the things of God they never had before. They've got a new peace, a new sense of purpose about their lives they didn't have before. And they want to live for Christ. They want to keep his commandments, even if they don't always do it very well. No, we can't understand exactly what's happened to them. We can only see that something has. They're new people. And so the key question we must ask lastly is how can we be born again? I think that's the question that Nicodemus is asking in verse 9. It's not really the same question as verse 4. In verse 4 he says, how can a man be born when he's old? But in verse 9 he says, how can this be? Or literally, how can these things happen? And I think he's more serious now. He's saying, Jesus, you've told me that I need to be born again. I believe you. You've explained to me that it is a deep inner change, and I understand that. I would like that to happen to me. But what I want to know is this, how can I experience it? How can it happen? Well, in, in one sense, there's nothing we can do. Because it's a bit like natural birth. We don't play any part whatsoever in being born physically, do we? It's entirely in the hands of our parents, where we're born, when we're born, how we're born. And there's a sense in which that is also true of being born again. You can't make yourself be born again. It's entirely a work of God. So we've got to pray. And uh, for those you know who are not yet Christians, I do hope that you will pray for them. You can't change them. Only God can do it. But does that mean, apart from prayer, that we're totally helpless? Does that mean that people simply have to wait and hope and say, well, you know, if it's in God's hands, there's actually nothing I can do, so I'm going to carry on with my life as normal and someday I may or may not be born again? No, that is not what the Bible is saying. Jesus says in this passage there are two things we can 
and we ought to do. Look at verse 11. He says to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, we speak, that's the royal we, he's talking about himself, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. In other words, if we want to be born again, the first thing we've got to do is accept and believe the testimony of Jesus. Now I know that the culture works against us here, doesn't it? Because we're living in days when the testimony of so many people in authority is simply not worthy of our trust. As soon as they start talking, we switch off. But you see, if God, if God has gone to all the trouble of entering our world and proves his identity by doing things on earth in front of eyewitnesses that only God can do, and he then tells us what we must do to be saved, only a fool, only a fool will refuse to listen. If Jesus is who he claims to be, his testimony deserves our full, complete trust. So that's the first thing we can do. We can listen carefully and believingly to everything Jesus says. But Jesus also says something else uh, in verse 14 and 15. Just look at verse 14 with me, if you will. Rather a curious reference, this. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, friends, this is the only reference in the whole of the New Testament to the event which is described for us in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And I'd like you to please to turn there now as we close. Page 115, Numbers 21, and we'll pick it up at verse Now while you're turning there, let me tell you that the context here is that God has brought Israel out of Egypt with an astonishing display of his rescuing power and grace. But now Israel are in the desert. They're not yet in the promised land. And we'll pick up the story at verse 4. Numbers 21, verse 4. They travelled, that's Israel, they travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, And we detest this miserable food. Well, then the Lord (coughs) sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, 
the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anybody was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, just so far. Now, the question is, why in John chapter 3 does Jesus use that particular incident to explain the meaning of the cross? Well, imagine meeting one of those Israelites who'd been bitten by a snake but then looked at the bronze serpent and lived. Um, If you asked him to explain what had happened, he wouldn't be able to do it. But he might say something like this. He might say, well, I knew that if I did nothing, I was going to die. But I had heard about God's promise and I had nothing whatsoever to lose by obeying the command. So I looked at the bronze serpent and suddenly it felt like I was born again. That's what it'd say. Now, of course, in that situation, the gift of life wasn't anything to do with magic properties in the bronze serpent. No, no. It was the gracious gift of God to those who trusted his word and obeyed his command. And so you see in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus and to all humanity, you may not yet fully comprehend the significance of the new birth. But if you are beginning to understand that like Israel in the wilderness, the entire human race stands under God's righteous judgment, Well then, put your trust in the Son of Man as he is lifted up on the cross and believe God's promise that if you do that, he will give you eternal life. You will be born again. Will you bow with me and let's pray. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonder of the new birth. We thank you here that many this morning have already experienced it have had their sins forgiven and today have a living hope of heaven. And so this morning we pray for those we know, people we love, people who are precious to us, who do not know Christ. We pray that in your mercy you would touch them from heaven so that they may be born again and know in their hearts that you have worked this miracle. And we ask it knowing that all the praise and all the glory must be given to you. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.